This is What Now with Mr. Tony. I am with Eric Munson. He's a senior at the University of New Hampshire, where he majors in accounting and finance. He is also a member of a student investment group where he oversees an asset management fund with assets of about $275,000. Eric, thank you for joining Mr. Tony. Very excited. Now, what's the goal of your student body, your members managing a fund while in school? It's a, actually a technically a class. We earn credit doing it. And it's about 40 undergrad students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, most of which have a business major, mostly finance. We have some other students in other schools. We have some students that do applied math and whatnot, which is actually becoming more and more important in finance. Students that have mathematical modeling capabilities, coding, knowledge, etc. Pretty interesting, which you know, we'll talk about in a little bit. Basically, we were given money from alumni and from our endowment funds as well back in 2005. And our goal is to conduct research, broadly speaking, through fundamental analysis. So we essentially take a look at what's going on in the economy and what's going on specific sectors of the economy, which can be broken up into, for example, healthcare, materials and chemicals, transportation, technology, real estate, et cetera. They're, and essentially, we're broken up into sectors where I'm actually the real estate sector leader. So we own about 40 companies in the entire fund. Our goal, like most other investment funds, is to outperform the broader market. So your typical average Joe could take some of his money, get a Robinhood account, and invest in a typical S&P 500 index, which will, broadly speaking, track the performance of the broader stock market. Now, the point of active investment management of what we do is to outperform and get better returns than you would just tossing your money into an account and sitting on it like a, like a nest egg. We conduct that research throughout each semester. We do two presentations to the group with recommendations on buying, selling, holding companies. Each sector has anywhere from three to five companies. Within the S&P 500, there are officially 11 equity sectors. So some of them I discussed, so healthcare, tech, basic materials, uh, industrials, et cetera. So that's our goal. Through those stocks that we own, we have about market value about 275000 Of course, just like everyone else, it's taken a huge hit with what's happened over the course of the past few months with coronavirus. But it kind of works both ways. So in a, in a bull market like what we had from 2009 up until just a few months ago, everyone was making money. And it's about, you know, can you make more money than the other guy? Can that guy make more money than the broader market? And that's what these hedge fund guys and people in, at the big banks, you know, doing uh, trading and handling these huge portfolios, that's what they get paid so much money to do is to make more money than the other guy. And that's okay. incredibly difficult. And what you find is in a portfolio, it's kind of a fine line between owning not enough companies and owning too many companies. So, for example, you know, you might have heard putting all your eggs in one basket. If you put all your money into one company and that company doesn't do too hot, your entire portfolio is tracking error if that company is, is 100%. So you're essentially at the whim of how that one company performs. On the other hand, if you have enough companies, you're diversified. That's what everyone, that's how everyone really should be. It depends on how much risk you're willing to take on. So if you're in, for example, 30, 35 companies, that, that would most usually be called well diversified. With one company that doesn't do too well, Hopefully, you're diversified in a way that the companies don't correlate too much. Perhaps one loss is another company's gain. And it's all about tailing your portfolio to really weather the storm and make sure you're not too exposed to anything too extreme on the good side and on the bad side because it can cut both ways. On the other hand, if you own too many companies, you're too exposed to the broader market. When you break it down further and look at portfolios mathematically and you look at correlation and price movements on a deeper level, you'll see that having perhaps 50, 60 companies 
you might track the market at a very small tracking error. So the goal is to really have enough companies that are diversified, but not too many. And you want to pick the right companies that you think are going to be the best. It's a really fine line. Um, and that's our goal is to find those good companies that we think are undervalued and buy them, hold them until we think um, is appropriate. I see. You're going to be graduating soon. What happens to capital gains that you've generated? Does that go to the next group, the next freshman class, or do you guys take it home? <laughs> I wish we could take it home, but fortunately, it is real money. It's in a TD Ameritrade account. Our portfolio manager actually had all access to it, so if he wanted to, he could close out our positions, transfer it all into his bank account, and walk away. But basically, it's on a rolling basis, so our the okay. team will leave, and then we'll take on probably 12 or 13 new members, usually sophomores, some juniors, even a senior. Some people get in the group a little late, but... You know, maybe they have a little bit more experience in, in the stuff, but being in the group is all about learning. The money stays, and luckily, since it's a student fund, we're actually exempt from all taxation. So normally, if this were some person's retail investor's personal investment account, if they were to sell stock at a gain, um, they would have to pay tax on it. If you sell at a loss, you can typically, speaking on a tax law, you offset your gains with losses. And, okay. and with dividends, you know, it might be not be too familiar, dividends are portions of the firm's profits that they pay out to their shareholders often to usually more mature companies. Usually growth companies tend to retain all their profits and use it to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, more mature companies that maybe don't grow as fast will uh, reward their shareholders with dividends and share buybacks, which, you know, again, that stuff is pretty controversial, especially with what's going on, what happened with the tax law, what's going on with cor corporate bailouts right now. But so what's cool is that we, you know, uh, under normal circumstances, you receive dividends or you get a capital gain, you're paying taxes on that. We're not. So there's a huge impact on not having to pay taxes and the whole business is built on tax planning and structuring your investments in order to defer taxes as long as possible. Yeah. So that's basically how it works. Okay. Um, obviously if a, a person in the group, you know, gets a great investment and sees a great return, they'll get, you know, a club from the others in the group. And if the other way, then maybe they'll, they'll embarrass themselves. So it's all about <laughs> not quite a, not really a vanity project, but in a way it kind of is, you know, the interests are aligned with the whole group. Everyone's there to, I guess, outperform and make as much money for the fund as possible. I'm going to jump to the next question. But uh, on that note, so there's a competitive streak to this. There's an element of competition to some degree. In a way, I mean, we're all there for the same cause, but people obviously are trying to one-up each other all the time. It's just you see it at a Wall Street bank, you see it at a student investment right. bank. Anywhere. It is kind of fun to try to do better than the next guy. Yeah. So, Eric, in some sense, investment banks, hedge funds, and the overall finance sector are not trusted and is seen to leave a bad taste in most people's mouths. Do you feel the new generation of finance professionals should now start to think of wealth creation as a humanistic vehicle, uh, in some sense a driver of the sector, where the well-being not only benefits the company, but also benefits the overall society in real and impactful ways? That's a really good question. Obviously, for years, people have had the most trust in financial institutions and Wall Street and hedge funds. Um, people see them as greedy and they kind of, and, uh, I guess they would call them the epitome of capitalism, you know, whatever your view it might be, which, of course, there are pros and cons to everything, whether you're a capitalist, socialist, communist, whatever it might be. But yeah, kind of goes into that like stakeholder versus shareholder theory. You know, Milton Friedman, the economist, who is very, very pro-capitalist, very pro-shareholder, his idea was that firms sole vision, their sole mission is to enrich their shareholders. Shareholders own the company. They're there to serve them and them only. Whereas a more utilitarian approach would be the stakeholders. So the stakeholder is everyone who has a stake in the company. So that would be the shareholders. It would also be the debt holders, the employees, the customers, the suppliers, anyone that interacts with business in any way. 
that kind of plays the idea that the proletary versus bourgeoisie is it going to result in this class division where you have the rich shareholders and the poor employees who are there to serve the shareholders or is everyone there to benefit from one another? Yeah, it's a good question. It's kind of interesting too because we're seeing you know, a lot of startups, a lot of companies that are using technology to level the playing field. You know, a lot of companies like this one called eToro, Robinhood, those kind of companies. eToro is pretty interesting. It's a, one of those commission-free stock trading apps. It has, it has like a social aspect to it too. People, you know, can learn from investors. It kind of democratizes investing. And you kind of look at what it was like to buy stocks in investments 25, 30 years ago. You'd have to call up your, you know, broker at Goldman Sachs, pay him a $300 commission just to buy one block of shares. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's incredible what technology has done. And then there's something called Funding Circle I read about, but a pretty interesting company. I only found out about it recently. It's kind of like a, like a peer-to-peer lending. So it's essentially people raising money for investors for startups and really anyone can, can hop in on it. Usually it's, you know, venture capital funds, private equity funds, these kind of companies that are making these kind of investments and reaping huge returns for their partners. But now again, it's democratized. That's what's incredible about technology is it's kind of there to be a shift and kind of, kind of level the playing field for everyone. No matter what technology does, people are still going to question, you know, is this the stock market versus everyone else. With what's going on with coronavirus, you have people arguing to open everything up. The stock market's been taking a hit in arguing that perhaps enriching shareholders makes up for the deaths of thousands of people. And that could backfire. How dare you, you know, equate people's lives to the Dow Jones? Recently, like I saw, there was this funny thing on Twitter. There was a screenshot from uh, Jim Cramer's Mad Money. There was a little writing that said 26. Six million Americans now jobless. And then on the top of the screen, it said the best week in the Dow Jones. Just kind of funny to see that contrast. Yeah, that kind of contrast. Millions of people are jobless. It's going to ramp up inequality and people aren't going to be able to pay their bills, make any money. And that's awful. But at the same time, they're lauding the gains in the stock market. And most Americans don't even own stocks. Only about 51% of Americans actually own stocks. And of those that do own them, it's they're highly concentrated. They're held by massive institutional investors, hedge funds, insurance companies. So it's kind of interesting to think if it is really a false economy or not. It's kind of sobering to see that headline on Kramer. But I think there's also been a lot more industry shifts that the sector itself, banking, hedge funds, et cetera, have become much more inclusive, much more diverse, starting to see a lot of them get into ESG investing, which stands for environment, social, and governance. Yes, I heard of that. Part for environment, you know, are these companies making investments that harm the environment? Are they investing in companies that emit tons of CO2? Are they funding genocide in sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera? More than the social aspect, which again, are they supporting or funding causes that further inequality or deprive people of human rights, civil rights, et cetera? And then governance, which is kind of how is the company run? Is their board of directors diverse? Is the company really acting in the benefits of the shareholders or is it acting in the benefits of the stakeholders? And again, it plays into that debate whether the firm's management is there to serve the shareholders or to serve everyone. I think what we're going to see is that stakeholder theory become more popular as people really decide really how capitalism works and how it can be useful, but also its limits. Yes, I'm going to jump right in. So how old are you? I just want to get your age up to 21. Among your peers and your senior class, What do you guys discuss among each other in terms of finding a new way of wealth creation where it's not so them versus us, where there's more consciousness of people, yet we want to make money and we want to be profitable and prosperous, but at the same time, we want to acknowledge the humanity that's all around us. So the young people, are they thinking about that? 
I think, yeah, young people are definitely thinking about it the most. And I think the older generations are, are beginning to be some cognizant of, of that as well. They know that the next generations are going to be in charge of everything. What's kind of interesting is young people are the most important demographic. I read something like 60-something trillion dollars are going to be inherited by millennials in the next 10, 11 years. It's kind of interesting, the shift from boomers to millennials, despite the clashes they might have between each other. They're going to have to start getting along. It's difficult to say how it would play out, but... I still think that the idea of wealth creation isn't going to be us versus them. Social issues will be will be very pressing. We'll bring people together and kind of plan an idea that a wealth-centric society, people will realize that there's two sides of the coin and that it's not just one side versus the other. That's the way capitalism has been. It has its shortcomings, but each side needs the other in order for it to operate. There's a mind shift in all of this, and I think people are talking about concerns that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody would talk about. But now we have sort of a humanity first movement with Andrew Yang, where he wants to incorporate the the humanitarian aspect of capitalism. And he's not an anti-capitalist. He just wants to, he thinks we need to re-envision what that can be. Here, this is what I understand. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So when we talk about universal basic income, in essence, it is cash payments that's given to all American citizens, let's say a dividend. This is part of Andrew's ingredient towards its humanity first, but others have talked about that as well before him. At the same time, to help grow awareness of his idea in human-centered capitalism. Do you find that the COVID pandemic itself has brought some of these issues to the forefront sooner rather than later? Yeah, definitely. Just a few weeks ago, people thought it was kind of out of this world, but in the bounds of what would come to be yeah. in the short term with UBI and people receiving no strings attached payments from the government, people thought that we're nowhere near the status quo, but it has been. And I think people have realized just how fragile the system is and that despite the benefits of the capitalist society, we're still seeing humongous shortages. People can't go to work. Of course, these are extreme circumstances, but yeah. you know, with UBI, of course, that comes from the inherent inequalities that have become the status quo with solid corporate consolidation, technology, and automation taking away jobs. I think it's a dual front issue that it's going to come from these pandemics. They're a normal part of life, and there will most likely be two others in this century. And you look back century, you had the Spanish flu, you had Ebola in the 70s and 80s, you had several. And so it's a normal part of life. And I think it shows the importance of regulation that, that are coming out. You know, you have companies and people, of course, needing bailouts and Companies spent 90, 95, 98% of their free cash flow on stock buybacks and dividends. I mean, they didn't leave enough money for a rainy day. Yeah. Everyday people can't afford that, and they're the most vulnerable at this point. And, you know, you have so much money going to these huge bailouts. It's a question of, you know, do they deserve it or not? They had the opportunity. They were the ones reaping the benefits of capitalism for all this time. And then when it time comes, you know, do they actually deserve it? I was watching this funny thing the other day. Entrepreneur works for uh, Social Capital. His name's uh, Chamath. Forget his last name, but social capital. Yeah, so he was basically saying. Oh yes, I, I yes, yes, yes. I love him. Yeah, so he was basically saying these huge companies owned by billionaires, big shareholders of these companies. He says, you know, like let them let them get wiped out. He kind of joked. He said, who cares if they don't get the summer in the Hamptons? He said, who cares if the equity in these companies become worthless? And basically, he said, and what I've also heard from from other talking heads and people. Is it worth the federal government going that much more into debt to bail out these huge companies? Let's wipe out the equity, start from scratch, let the firm's debt take what's called a haircut, reduce the value of the debt, pay it back, let the pension stay in place, let the employees stay in place, focus on the company's debt, let the equity get wiped out and start from scratch. Some of the airlines have even in the new deal with the federal government 
will allow the federal government to purchase what's called warrants in these companies, which are essentially stock options that the company creates to sell to investors, but they're selling it to the U.S. government. So essentially what we might see is more public interest in these companies. So the federal government could actually own equity stakes in these in these companies from now on because they're so desperate for this bailout money. It's just interesting because it's a question of inequality, how these companies generate such consistent, incredible profits and cash flow, and use it all to prop up their own stock price, all for it to come crashing down and to be spent in vain. Okay. Yeah, I just want to jump in because that kind of mindset, all the money grabby, 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 I don't know if that's going to be sustainable. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just kind of, again, it just seems like a destructive way of doing business as usual. When in fact, that more of a disruption and displacement of workers and the labor force will be totally transformed as we head further into the 21st century through artificial intelligence, automation. I'm not even an expert, and we talk about this off and on, you and I. The shift is like incredible. You know, I'll go into a food store and there's no cashier. There's stuff checkout. That will be the reality in a few short years is automation, driverless cars, no cashiers. And a lot of business jobs, too, when you can automate things and use machine learning to take away jobs, it definitely will be the reality. Yeah. Like you said, with UBI, will be a, it'll be a very big question, a very important topic. And in the short term, I just thought about this last night. I'm not a finance major, but I like to think about these kind of things. It affects everything. In the short term, I think low-wage workers, low-skilled or unskilled workers are going to be impacted the most as we are witnessing now. And as further along as artificial intelligence and automation becomes the new norm, certain sectors will start getting affected. Now, already radiology has been disrupted because of AI. The software that guides AI can detect colors that the human eye can't when it looks at scans. So radiology. It's all about creating things that can do things humans can't or doing things that humans do currently that they want to avoid. That's what's incredible is the driving force behind capitalism is to grow profits. And if humans can't pick up the slack, then by default, you're going to want to move towards AI. Like with driverless cars, technically there wouldn't be traffic jams because traffic jams are the result of human inefficiencies in driving and creating bottleneck. Uh, when in reality, cars could communicate with one another over a network. You could have them move in unison and communicate with each other mm -hmm. in real time. Same thing to be able to have surgeries done remotely. You could have a surgeon that's in Europe conducting a surgery with a patient in New York. And then what's next? If you can have robots using machine learning and can do much more complex operations, then their job disappears as well. The disruptive technology will continue. That'll manifest the importance of UBI and not only just the resounding importance of it, but how we're actually going to get it because that's for a lot of people, the question at hand. The question at hand is how is it going to be paid for? That and the effects of it. Andrew Yang's popular idea was with the value-added tax, which is that in, in, in European countries, which you know they've been doing for a while. The evidence so far and the research kind of says it could work. And it's the idea of will it have a tangible effect given the cost? Will the benefit that way the cost? I see. But yeah, really what he said was true is that you need to have money flowing throughout the economy. And that kind of spending is what will encourage growth. That's what's necessary. You know, you have opponents that, that talk about inflation and whatnot. But what's interesting is I did my macroeconomic courses at UNH and I really couldn't see any way how it really would cause inflation. Typically with inflation or hyperinflation is when you have too much money chasing too few goods. But what's interesting is that people would be spending more money and that would encourage those that produce goods and services to produce more in order to capture the demand. And there was actually kind of a funny thing. Uh, there, was like a, there was a program in some part of Mexico where they gave out subsidies for food to certain areas. 
and people were kind of observing it, seeing it as it was basically a UBI. And they were expecting, you know, the food producers to raise all the prices, but they actually lowered them slightly. It was kind of done so that they could compete with one another because they anticipated the higher demand. If the economy can anticipate that higher demand, they'll want to be able to capture that demand. And really what it's all about is that inflation really because aggregate demand, which I don't really see happening. Of course, if you were to give every American a billion dollars, then of course, <laughs> I think... I think, I think thousand dollars a month, I really don't see that as having an impact on overall prices in the economy. It will be important that it'll allow the massive profits that are earned by these huge companies that AI and machine learning and whatnot to replace jobs, to use that money to good use and prevent it from accumulating. Because what we've seen is wealth and income inequality are the worst they've ever been. I mean, the top 26 people in the world own as much wealth as the 3.8 billion poorest people. And it's incredible. 50 years from now, when they're, when they're deceased, that money is just going to be three times that amount. You know, it's interesting just to see how it's not put to good use. Will it become necessary to ensure that these companies, under the stakeholder theory, that they are contributing to society and not just continually passing the profits upstairs? Now, I want to follow up with a consumption tax. From my little bit of understanding, are we taxed at the rate of what we're buying or what we buy? Consumption taxes are typically flat rates. The U.S. government doesn't have any consumption taxes that I can think of. Typically, at the state level, you'll have a sales tax, a meal tax. Some states have what's called a use tax, which is, let's say, you live in a state that does have a sales tax, but you live next to a state that doesn't. So let's say I am from your country, there is no sales tax, and you're, you're in Massachusetts, so you go over the border and buy something and avoid that sales tax. Typically, on something that's larger, you'll typically, if you use that asset in the state that you reside, you do have to pay called a use tax, which is basically just buying in that state to avoid that uh, aforementioned sales tax. Right. There has been questions raised about some type of federal consumption tax or some type of value-added tax, which is essentially a, a supply chain tax, where at each level of the supply chain, each time value is added to that product or service, they pay a little sliver, pass it on to Uncle Sam, and essentially what it does spreads out that cost and allows everyday Americans to access the immense value created by these companies that just makes inordinate amounts of money. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm living in a fantasy here, but does the revenues that's generated by the consumption tax, when I think of consumption tax, I'm thinking about millions and millions of people consuming, buying in this country, for instance, generating a ton of money. Can that be used to offset the cost of uh, UBI? To some degree? Yeah, yes. That plays the idea of not only is, is how it's funded, but how is it offset. So if you're able to offset that with taxes, it would play the idea that it would reduce the risk of hyperinflation. You have the idea of modern monetary theory, which is the government's collection of taxes is a separate ordeal than the money it spends on a budget. So the idea is that the government technically isn't limited by the amount of taxes that it collects and the amount of money it can borrow, when technically they can just print as much money as it wants. The very clear and formidable caveat to that is hyperinflation. If you just print endless amounts of money, then that puts the idea that you have too much aggregate demand for the aggregate supply. You have too much money chasing a scarce amount. So really, does the money for UBI come from taxes or does it come from redistribution of capital ownership? It would really play into a more socialist type mix in with capitalism, which sort of plays into you know, Elizabeth Warren's idea of a wealth tax, etc. It is interesting because there really hasn't been a large-scale UBI ever carried out, but typically other schools of thought say, yes, you, you would collect it from taxes, and essentially the money would flow between 
the government in between the populace. Someone just brought the consumption tax up to me, and I thought that was an interesting uh, concept, and I don't see why that could be off the table. The thing, you know, the caveat to that is poor people tend to pay higher effective rates on their income in taxes. So, of course, we have what's called a progressive tax bracket. The more money you make, then the higher tax bracket you're in, the, the, the higher effective rate you pay. First $10,000 you make, you pay, I think it's like 10%. Then from 10000 to 30 something thousand, you pay 14%. And then, so your effective rate is going to be somewhere between 10 and 14%. So the higher you go, the higher uh, rate you have for whatever marginal tax rate you're a part of. But essentially, the more money you make, the lower the uh, effective rate is when you take into account certain taxes that people have to pay. So existing consumption taxes paid at the state level and other taxes paid, um, payroll, state income taxes, et cetera. So what you see is a lot of lower income people can sometimes pay equal or even higher effective rates on their income. And, and typically, those consumption taxes would adversely take more money away from those people that would probably benefit more from UBI. The idea is how to balance the taxes collected versus what's redistributed and whether it's worth collecting that money and whether or not it will improve the, the financial standing of the people that need it. Of course, someone you know, someone who's making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year doesn't really care a whole lot about a thousand bucks. But someone who you know is making twenty two thousand a year, you know, mean the world to them. If everyone's paying into it fairly and it, it can be subsidized properly, then yeah, if you can keep prices under control, then yeah. But it's all about finding a way to finance it without disrupting the status quo too much that money flow out of the country. You could theoretically put taxes at eighty percent on everyone, but then they would just take their money elsewhere, and it's all. <laughs> And it's all about being able to balance it. So I don't think we have heard the last from Andrew Yang. I think his narrative will continue. And I think he's also has some very interesting partners in the tech sector. I call them tech bros. They're not on the board, but they certainly think it's an avenue that they should explore. Because since they're the ones that are causing the disruption displacement of labor, this is out of their own mouth, they admit it, and they also said that's not changing because that's not their model, is their technology, their forward-thinking organizations. So they want to help mitigate some of the impact, which I found interesting coming from very successful business people. But then again, these people are younger and more uh, open-minded going into the 21st century than the people that used to, like, say, oversee Ford Motor or Exxon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? They're totally on a different mind shift and they understand. I mean, like the guy, Soft, what is the company in um, San Francisco? SoftBank? It's not SoftBank. Yeah, 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 SoftBank. So he had an interesting conversation because uh, he was on his way to work. And as you well know, in San Francisco, the homeless problem is the next level. People, not just for druggies, but for people who work, workers, wage earners, or low wage income folks can't find living in San Francisco, even people who are making, what, $250,000. And he said that it's up to us to help get this fixed. He's worth, I don't know, trillions of dollars. I think that that kind of mindset is happening among that demographic of the new business leaders. SoftBank, I don't know, I forgot his name. Yeah, that's the funny thing too, is, is that kind of outspurs down there. A lot of big prominent people with wealth are chiming in and they're, they're agreeing that they have too much money. And, you know, you have Bill Gates, you know, the great Ray Dalio is a hedge fund legend. He's the, the head of uh, Bridgewater Associates, one of the greatest hedge funds ever. 
he said, you know, he's a capitalist, he's a business guy, but he says capitalism's broken. He says in a, in, a, in the wealthiest country in the world, we do great things and we create such immense wealth and some of the highest living standards, but when you have so many people living on the streets, you know, something along the way is broken. Something is um, seen. Yeah. So uh, before we go into closing, I want to ask you, at the moment, my guy's Andrew Yang, taught him, he's kind of a bro, uh, Kind of, he's kind of hot in his own way. Who are some of the people that you like so far or some of the people that you're noticing and taking a few notes on? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, for a lot of people, um, I think Andrew Yang was great. I think he was very admired. You have Bernie, extremely popular for a lot of people. You know, there are things that I can agree with. I think this country does need to move to, you know, a single-payer healthcare system, you know. That's another front to, to address. And when you have these people that can inspire move, inspire change, and they're movers, they're doers, that yeah. you want. I really admire Elon Musk. We need minds like that that are in charge. We need people who are scientifically oriented and, you know, believe in truth and fact and evidence. You know, those are the kind of people we want making choices and policies that will better the lives of everyone. Um, you know, Bill Gates, and they truly do care about others and he contributes immense amounts of his wealth, Warren Buffett, people like that you know, really do inspire. Because not only do they success stories of capitalism, but they're also giving back. They're humble. And those are the kinds of people I listen to. This was awesome. I so enjoyed listening to you and letting you talk. I'm impressed at your age. The big concepts that you could speak on. And I hope you influence other young people your age to sort of grab these big issues, take them on, because we need that kind of leadership coming up, going into the 21st century. So I want to thank you again, my friend. Oh my God. We'll do some part two or something. We'll let things percolate and maybe we'll tackle healthcare. I think that'd be a good thing. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Bye. Take care. Bye.